Well, thanks for clapping, but I haven't, I haven't said anything yet, so I don't know how well this will go. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if you, uh, if you can't open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, that's where we'll be today, specifically chapter, or verse 17. Uh, and I just want to say before I begin, one happy Father's Day to all the dads. Yeah, thank you. It's like that awkward, you say happy father, you say you too, and you realize they're not, anyways, but uh, so happy Father's Day, and, uh, and what a joy it is, I must say, just to be given the privilege, the calling of being uh, an elder, and so I just want to share with you what a, a joy, Scott and I have been talking about what a joy it is, because you, you are a body that just loves on us, loves on our family, and uh, you love Jesus, and you make it a joy to come alongside you and point you to Jesus, so uh, I'm just overflowing with delight, being a dad today, being, uh, be, uh, being officially presented as an elder, um, so it's with joy that we jump in today, and, uh, and one of the joys, again, is preaching God's word, and so again, we're in... Uh, or, uh, Matthew 5, I can't remember where we are, right? Uh, Matthew 5, and we are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this series, we're looking specifically at how do we find fullness or wholeness in a broken world? How do we find wholeness in the midst of a broken world? And as we've been talking this morning, obviously, it's, it's not too difficult to, I wouldn't have to argue right now, to say, hey, don't you think there's a little bit of brokenness in our world, right? Um, Clearly, there's brokenness in our world. And right now, our world is waking up to brokenness and, and trying to respond to brokenness and not knowing how to respond to brokenness. And there's brokenness that we realize within ourselves. There's, and then this week, um, not only my, my wife's grandmother died this week, who she was very close to, and then also with Kevin dying this week. And just, man, realizing the brokenness that we have in this world. And sometimes when these things, seasons come, it can be hard to remember that we are offered wholeness in Christ, uh, peace, joy, completion, uh, just this sense of everything being as it should be, that we're, we're offered those things in Christ. And one of the things is I've been mourning uh, losing Kevin since Wednesday. Uh, just been thinking about this. And, and one of the things as I've been preparing is, is just how Kevin embodied this reality of just living this whole life of joy. If you knew Kevin, he, just, he, he was a member here at Anthem, and he'd be up here uh, worshiping at Salt Company. He'd be worshiping on Thursday nights, and he just, he lo- just his hands were up, and he's just always overflowing with this joy in Christ, and he always had something joyful to share with you about Christ, and that was overflowing out of him. And I, I look at that, and I go, man, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about with finding wholeness in Christ. And, 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 and as I've been looking, I'm like, man, I, I want that. And I know there have been seasons in my life where I have that, and I want that. I want to walk in that wholeness. And even in the midst of a broken world, I want to find that peace that we can have in Christ. And one of the things as the Lord's been bringing this line back to me again and again as I've been thinking about Kevin, I'm like, man, Kevin, Kevin was just a, he's a good guy. He's a good man. And a good man in Christ. And, and one of the things God's been bringing back is Kevin was a good man because he knew a good, he knew a better man. Because he knew and he loved a better man. He knew Jesus Christ. And he found his identity in Christ. He found his sense of righteousness, his sense of peace in Christ. And out of that overflowed that life, that, that wholeness they found in Christ. And so this morning as we jump in, Jesus is going to be talking about the law. And often as we come to the law, it, it's easy to think, okay, we're talking about wholeness. And it's like, now let's talk about the law, okay? And you're like, that's... I'm, I'm not sure how those two go together, right? Those are, it's like oil and water, right? The law, and it's kind of, 
stingy and we have rules. And then over here, it's like life and wholeness, right? No, these actually come together. And so today we're going to see how Jesus is going to help us see how the law and understanding the law and appropriately responding to the law and understanding the law is going to be at the core of our finding wholeness in him in the midst of brokenness. So let's pray and let's jump in. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we are not left to just construct lives, to live lives, trying to find completion, to find wholeness, a sense of being enough, of righteousness, of significance. We do not have to try to find these things, make them up out of thin air. But you've given us, one, your law, and you've given us Christ so that we would find life. And so, Lord, the truths that are here are well beyond me. Well beyond, beyond any of us, our ability to truly fully grasp these things, for them to truly bear fruit in our lives. So, Lord, we ask that, Spirit, you would give me the words, that they would be in accordance with your word that you finally spoken, and that they would penetra- you would penetrate our hearts and we would, your word would find soft soil to take down root and bear fruit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, we're going to look at this in two ways. First is, how should we think about the law? And then next, we're going to look at what do we do with the law? Okay, so how do we think about the law? How do we think about the law? So there's a lot of confusion. When I say law, probably if I ask 20 of you, what do you think about the law? And we did a survey. I'd probably get 20 different responses. And and when I say law, and when Jesus says law here, he's going to be talking about the Old Testament law. And sometimes law is used for kind of the whole entire Old Testament. But usually the law is the, the commandments of the Lord. And so this is what Jesus says starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So when we think about this law, Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, both the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the law. And so Jesus is talking here about both the commandments, thou shalt not murder, you shouldn't worship any God before me, you shouldn't, uh, 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 shouldn't steal, lie, shouldn't speak against your neighbor, all the laws, plus then, and those are called usually the moral aspects of the law. Okay, so usually the way to think about the law is three different parts. And and this isn't explicit in the Old Testament, but this is a way that theologians, they've used this as a way to kind of wrestle with the different aspects of the law. And one is the moral law, and that's the, the do's and don'ts and moral living. And, uh, and then you have the ceremonial parts of the law, and that's the, uh, what has to do with the sacrifices and uh, the offering of sacrifices for sin. And uh, then you have also the, uh, you have the ceremonial, then you have the civil. So moral, civil, ceremonial, and then civil. And the civil aspects of the law have to do with like uh, holidays and keeping uh, tithing and uh, kind of governance and what it means to live as the people of God. And so what happens is in the New Testament, you have Jesus coming in and fulfilling the Old Testament uh, requirements of a moral law through the ceremonial means of the sacrificial system. And then his spirit comes and resides in his people where his kingdom now comes and bears fruit in them. And so that's kind of where we're going. But those three different aspects are what happens in the law. And Jesus is saying here, he says, I have come not to abolish the law, to fulfill it. Now, to grasp why, when Jesus says here, he says, I'm not going to abolish the law. And to grasp why he would say that, we need to make two connections that Jesus is going to make about the nature of the law here. The first is that the law is connected to creation. The law is connected to creation. I'll unpack that in a second. And then the next one is that the law is connected to Jesus. It's tied to Jesus. 
And so the law is connected to creation. One of the, uh, notice that Jesus says that as long, truly, truly, verse 18, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So until heaven and earth pass away, until Jesus comes again, until there's a new heavens and a new earth, uh, the law will stand. So you notice that Jesus is connecting the duration of the law with the duration of creation. And this is nothing new in Scripture. This is why in the New Testament we'll say things like, the law is written on your hearts. This is why you'll have things like at the beginning uh, in Genesis, you have God speaking the word into existence and then God also speaking his law. That creation is something that in when God created the world, he created the world so it is hardwired with his holiness. In other words, the moral law is weaved into the fabric of our universe, of our world, to the same extent that all the physical laws of gravity and, and molecular biology and whatnot are weaved into our world. So God created the world, and when he overflowed with this world that reflected his glory, he overflowed with the light in himself. And as he made this world that reflected his glory, he did things like he created the world that he was like, it looks beautiful and it reflects my beauty, and it looks grand and humongous, and it blows your mind because you look through a telescope and it keeps going, and he says, I'm like that. And God also created this world where uh, the seasons, the sun rises every day, and the seasons come, like we just hit the summer uh, solstice, right? What happens if the earth doesn't start going back the other way, right? Not good, okay? Ice age, right? Like everything just, the world just goes, but God says, I've set things in the world so that when it turns, then it goes back to the, so we start going towards winter, okay? Or else you would just freeze to death eventually or burn up eventually. And those seasons and those days and the lunar, all these things are just for God to say, I am faithful like that. And then in his creation, in his people, he hardwired them with his moral goodness, so that when we sin, when we do things, when we commit murder, our psyches break down and people fall apart mentally. When we live with stress and we live with anger towards people and bitterness and we never get rid of that and we just burn with that, eventually we have heart problems. If we live just feeding our lust, it will destroy our marriages. If we live gossiping and speaking ill of people, it'll eventually not give life, but it'll take life. See, we live in a creation. We are creatures that live in the creation of a creator. And all of it reflects his glory, including the moral realities around us. And we know this intuitively, too, because, like, imagine if, if we were thinking, like, okay, God created a world, and we go into the world, and it's, like, beautiful, right? Imagine the most pristine, beautiful place where, like, I, I picture, like, this elfish land, right? Where it's, like, everyone's kind of, like, has, like, half centaur body, right? And they're, like, kind of, kind of, like, do-do-do-do-do. They have little flutes, and they come around, and then everyone's there, and you're, like, this is beautiful, and it's so serene, and there's flowers and waterfalls and whatnot. And then, and then you go, oh, this reflects the glory of God. And he says, this is good. And you go, oh, yes, this is good. And then somebody comes along, and you're like, do-do-do-do-do. And you're like, oh, let's, let's make some merrymaking, right? And he's like, yes, merrymaking. Let's go and let's, let's plunder the children and burn the villages. And everyone goes, yes, yes, amen, do-do-do-do-do, right? Like you would immediately say, wait, something went wrong there, right? Like, that, was, that, that seemed kind of, maybe it was a weird fantasy, the elfish land. But at the same time, like, okay, I can see where that's good. But then all of a sudden, what happened from that, what flowed out of it, was something that was not good. Like, God doesn't look at that and go, like, okay, that's good. God looks at a creation that's hardwired both to reflect his glory in the physical realities and that is hardwired with the moral realities of what he is like. 
So God says be faithful and don't lust because God is faithful. God says don't use your words to destroy because God uses his voice and his words to bring forth life. In the entire universe and the law, and Jesus says, I cannot abolish the law. I came not to abolish it. You know why? Because if I abolish the law, I'd be abolishing the very reality of the universe. And so what's being said here is to live in God's creation is to live in his moral universe. And when we live out of line with that moral universe, things break down. When we live in accordance with God's moral hardwiring of the universe, we flourish. And this is why Jesus says what he says then next in verse 19. He says, therefore, so therefore, because of what came before is true, because the entire universe is hardwired with this moral reality, and I've placed you as my creation in it with the ability, not as beasts of the field, not as animals, but as human beings made in my image, so you are not instinctual. You have the human capacity to honor me by responding morally to the world around you, because you have that reality in you. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what's Jesus saying? There? He's not like, I, I, when you're reading this, maybe you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, wait, is Jesus now going to this whole like this works righteousness thing? Where like, like now Jesus is saying, hey, actually, there's this whole other thing called the law and you got to keep that and you got to make sure that you don't kind of spoil that or, 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 or tell someone not to follow it. And if you, do, if you do those things, then you'll be saved. What's Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying because of the reality that the entire world, you cannot get rid of this moral law to lead someone down the road of saying, hey, don't worry about that. Go live however you want. Just, you, okay, you, you've been baptized, you've been, you've been saved, you, you've prayed a prayer, so now, guess what? Actually, you're, you've got freedom from the law, so you can live however you want. He says, if you do that, you lead them down a path of destruction, and you will destroy them. Instead of bringing heaven to earth, you're going to bring and make their life a living hell. Because they're living a life that is out of line with God's character and who he is. So Jesus is saying, don't go down that road. Point them actually to my law. Point them to the reality of what the law says. Now, at this point, because we're going through this, and, and by the way, this is where Jesus is going to go through much of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, right after this, this is kind of like, a, if you're thinking about like the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, this is kind of like the launching pad into the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's going to go a few chapters, and he's immediately going to go into, like, don't hate people, that's murder. Don't, uh, don't lust, because that's going to destroy your life. He goes into these, here's how you use money, here's how you think about possessions. He's going to go into these things because of the fact that he wants them to know life and know the law and not be denying it, and he wants them to know fullness and wisdom and life and not destroy themselves. So he's going to say, I'm going to fulfill this law. We're going to deal with this, but at the same time, don't go down this road of just chucking it because you'll destroy your life. And so then, so at this point, though, when we're walking through this, it's like the law is important. You got to keep the law. If you don't, it's going to destroy your life. And then it's like, so imagine if I just stopped here. And I was like, so that's good news, right? So Jesus is saying, follow the law, and it's good. So guys, just follow the law, right? You should probably be a little like something... Uh, Hey, uh, I have a tiny problem, just tiny problem, Pastor, if I'm honest, I may or may not have kind of broken that law. 
just a, just a little bit, a little spice in my life, right? Uh, just spice things up. Uh, I've got a little bit, you know. So, and one, if you think you have not broken the law, the law is this hard reality. Like, facts are stubborn things, okay? And the law is a stubborn thing because it brings us up against the hardwiring of the universe, just like coming up against a mountain. And it's like, have you lied? Have you lusted? This is what Jesus is going to do throughout the whole time. Have you hated? Then let's call it what it is. It's destruction. And my law is going to reveal that to you. And so it is not, and so in other words, it's a big problem. It's not a small problem. It's a big one. God doesn't look at her sin. I used to have this idea in my mind where it's like God kind of looks at her sin and he's kind of like, oh, isn't that cute? I think often we can respond to God that way. We're like, oh, it's just kind of like God gets it. It's just kind of a cute thing. It's not cute. And here's why it's not cute. This is the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here and dealing with our sin. Is he's saying, you, I have a law because it reflects God's glory. And your hope, your salvation is to one day be back in my presence. And if I am holy and you want to be in my presence and know me and know peace and love and joy and delight and freedom forever, then I am not going to water that down to the lowest common denominator so that you can come in. Because in fact, if I do that, what happens is I've just destroyed the essence of salvation. And so what God is saying, why he's serious about sin, why the Bible is serious about sin is because he's serious about saving us. He's serious about our joy. He's serious about our delight, about us having freedom and knowing him. And so God, Jesus says here, I cannot abolish this law. I will address it. This is why it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, this is verse 20, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've been talking about the audience here, probably for the Sermon on the Mount, includes like the most religious teachers of the day. So these are the most righteous people there, right? You know those guys, like they have like the incense or something, and they have like a weird hat, and they're just kind of saying like, ah, that guy, like that guy's good with God, right? And uh, and they're like in the back of the audience, and Jesus is saying this, and he's like, this is for you guys. And everyone's looking at those guys going, if I could just be like them and have their righteousness, then I would be saved. And Jesus is going, guess what, guys? You don't even have the righteousness necessary to get into my kingdom. It's got to exceed your righteousness. So what's happening here is everyone is realizing, he's saying, in fact, what he's saying here is, No one has the righteousness necessary. No one's kept my law. We sin and we break the law, but if we break the law, we can't get in to God's kingdom. That's the essence of the core of the reality of sin. It's not an easy one, not an easy fact, but it's clear. And this is why Jesus, it's tied to creation, but it's also tied to me. And this is why this is important. The law is tied to creation, but also to Jesus. Look back at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, I don't know about you. When I was like a younger Christian, I would have to like reread that because I was like, I expected to say I've abolished the law. I expect Jesus to say, I, I do not think that I have come to, you know, I don't know, I've come to abolish the law, and I have come to fulfill something. Like, I thought somehow in there he would just abolish it. Like, Jesus comes and he goes, you know, guys, that archaic system of moral do's and don'ts and all that stuff got rid of it. And we're like, oh, 2.0 Bible, this is great. Like, we're going to, now we're moving on from this. No, Jesus says, I cannot abolish the law any more than I can abolish reality itself. 
We're stuck with the law. The law is here. It's who God is. It's, re- it's telling us what he's like and what it means to have life with him. Listen, and this, if there's nothing else that you remember from this sermon, remember this. It's not a question of if we have to fulfill the law. It is never a question of if we have to fulfill the law in the Bible. It's a question of how will we fulfill it? How will we fulfill it? Again, it never is like, okay, how do, do I have to fulfill the law? Like, it's a question of how will you fulfill the law? So if you've sinned, then the problem is you have not fulfilled the law. And the wages of sin is death, Romans says. That no one has fulfilled the law. This is the problem throughout the New Testament. All the hard passages, they're right around this dynamic right here. You cannot. This is the problem that Jesus is drawing at or driving at. That on one hand, I have got the law that I cannot deny. Because if I deny it, you don't have salvation. There's no hope. You've got to have a place you are saved to, and that is with God in his holy presence. And on the other hand, I cannot deny that you have sin. And so you have these two, and this is this problem, and it's like, what do we do with these? This is exactly what Jesus is drawing out here in this passage. We should have exactly that kind of inner, like, what do we do with that? And it's exactly the problem that's been there from the beginning. And one of the things we haven't really unpacked are the parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and the giving of the law by Moses in Exodus. And when he gives them the Ten Commandments and he comes down. And so Moses goes up on a mountain. Here Jesus goes up on a mountain. And he, he reveals to them God's law, and he comes down, he gives them God's law, and then after he gives them God's law, though, the people, that Moses goes away for a while, and they're like, hey, Mo, maybe Moses died, and they're like, oh, we're going to make a God in our own image, some merrymaking, do-do-do-do-do, right? And so they go, and they do it, and Moses comes out, he's like, what have you done? And so they've broken the law, they've rebelled against God, and so Moses knows this means death. And so he goes up to God, and he has the same problem. He goes to them, and he's like, you have we are now encountering the glory of God, the holiness of God. We're supposed to have a relationship with him as a people. And on the other hand, you have sinned. And so he goes, this is Exodus 32, 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So he says, atonement means you've brought about death. I have to figure out a different death to take your place. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now, and catch this, but now if you will forgive their sin. And what's interesting is there's a dash there in our English translations. In the Hebrew, there's, it's kind of like the, the, the thought just like runs out. It's very, very unique in the Hebrew, where it's just like, it just stops. They just kind of like, what, what happened there? Well, what happened there, it seems like, is Moses is in the middle. He, he's realizing the weightiness of that problem. We're just going, God, they've, they've sinned, so uh, they've sinned here, so uh, maybe, you could, uh, maybe you could sweep the, the law under the carpet? Maybe we could just kind of overlook this, maybe you could just forgive them? What he's trying to realize is, wait, if the law, and there's, to forgive them means that both of these things have to be dealt with. You can't just get rid of one of them. And so he kind of trails off, and then, and then he comes, and he realizes this, and he says, but if not, because he realizes you can't just forgive, you can't just sweep it under the rug. But if not, please blot me out of the, your book that you have written. In other words, the book of life, the book of, that says who's saved and who's not. And he's saying, just blot me out. Let me be the one who stands in their stead. And God says, no, you can't be. 
And God says, no, you can't be because you are not the right sacrifice. You're not perfect. You're not blameless. You can't fulfill the law. So how will the problem be solved? Well, here we have 2,000 years after that the same problem. And what Jesus has done is some 2,000 years after Moses met with God on the mountain and saw his glory, Jesus, the Son of God, the glory of God in human flesh, ascended another mountain to proclaim that he would fulfill the law where Moses couldn't and where the people didn't. How? So how will Jesus do this? Will he deny the law? Will he deny God's glory? Or will he deny their, their sin? How will Jesus deal with this? And what Jesus does is not by denying the law nor by denying that we've broken the law, but by denying himself, emptying himself, Philippians 2 says, taking on the form of a servant, taking our sin upon himself, taking our sin and our shame and our death that the law demanded in response to our sin, and hung on a cross to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, becoming our substitute in our place, so that we who have sinned might no longer have this sin, but instead might be given the righteousness of Christ and no longer be over here, but be over here where God's law is fulfilled and kept, and we are made righteous in Christ. Without Christ as our substitute, we are in our sin. The law is not going away. This is why Romans 10.4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, like if you think of like the Old Testament, like kind of like train stops along the way while the train's going through the Old Testament, Christ is the end of the line. Like everywhere that you're going throughout the Old Testament, it's like, where's this headed? Where, where, what's happening here? It's going to Christ. And all that, all the, what's happening here with what Christ is saying and fulfilling the law is I have fulfilled every aspect of it. So in my death, I was given over as the perfect sacrificial lamb to fulfill the ceremonial aspects of the law. And so now I have come, and, I've, and that's, that's done away with and dealt with the moral aspects of the law that you could not fulfill. So that, and we'll come back to that. And now my spirit, because remember, the work of Christ does not end on the cross, but also then he goes into the grave, he conquers it, and rises again. And so in conquering the law, then he conquers the grave and now his spirit comes to reside in us. And so now all those civil aspects of the law and all those things about being the people of God and, and the temple and what to do with it, now we become the temple and God's spirit, his holy spirit, dwells within us and makes us a new creation in Christ. He deals with all the aspects of the law. So it's not a question of if you have to fulfill the law. It's a question of how will you fulfill the law. And the way we fulfill the law is by looking at Christ and saying, yes, I have broken the law. I have fallen short. I cannot know life in God's presence. And coming to the one and final sacrifice that deals with it and looking to him by faith and saying, I need you because I can't do it. In the Old Testament, 
I think this is where it's helpful to go to the law in the Old Testament and see all the kind of precursors to the imagery of Jesus being laid down as the sacrificial lamb and looking to him by faith because what would happen is you'd go to the temple and you'd bring a fitting sacrifice. Like you didn't bring, like you'd say like, this is why there are all these laws about like, you need a perfect, strong, like not sickly bull, right? Because if like you commit a big sin and then you're like, hey, like you go to like your farmhand, like do we have any like bulls that are kind of like on their way out? Like, yeah, there's this like weak, sick one that's dying. You're like, let's sacrifice that one, right? That's not much of a sacrifice. What, what happens is you got to get a big, Big bull, strong, healthy, big cost to you. And you take that bull and you bring it and you sacrifice it. And what you would do is you would literally, and this gets to, it's going to be graphic, but this is the graphicness of our sin, is you would look in its eyes while you placed your hand on its head, you would take a knife and you would cut its neck. And you would think about your sin and the cost of your sin as the blood drained from that animal and the life drained from his eyes. And you would recognize that this animal's death has taken away my sins and has covered my sins. In the same way in the New Testament, Jesus says, look to me by faith when I am hung up, when I bleed for you. Do you look to me? Not just some, just pray a prayer, just a good feeling, but you look in my eyes and see that on this cross, I have taken your sin and I'm bearing it and this is its cost. But I do this for the joy set before me to have you, to make you new. This is how we should think about the law. This is why the law matters, that Jesus has fulfilled the law. But then Jesus has fulfilled the law so that we might walk in newness of life. So this is the second point, that not only has Jesus, how should we think about the law and Jesus fulfilled the law, but how do we use the law? So in the, um, I don't know if you've ever wondered, but now, so I've talked about Jesus' death covers our sin, and, and so we have the law, how's the law still work? We, we have all these questions still about how do we approach the law? What, what do we do with the law? Because it's so easy to think, well, I guess now we don't really do anything with it. It doesn't really matter at all. So how do we think about it? Uh, and so I know there's usually, usually fall into two extremes. One is we don't need the law at all. And so this means we become like anti-law. And so we say anything is like legalism. If you're like, hey, you know, you really shouldn't, uh, like, you, you know, you shouldn't really have an affair. And they're like, ah, that's legalism, right? And then on the other hand, you have this thing where it's like, it's all law and you got to keep the law. And if you break the law, then you're, you're just going to, you got to get saved again because you're going to go to hell if you die right now. So there's two extremes. What do we do with the law? Is there this third way? Well, this is historically, it's called the three uses of the law. And I want to kind of end with walking through these because what do we do with the law? How does the law lead to flourishing and wholeness in our life? Because remember, we've now got this standing in Christ because he's fulfilled the law. Now how do we engage with the law to find life in Christ, the life that Christ has given us? So first aspect is the law is given to restrain sin. I'm going to break these down in a second. The law shows us our guilt and leads us to Christ. And the third and principal use of the law is an instrument to learn God's will. So this is how it works. I, I, I think this is a helpful analogy. If um, in our yard, when we bought our house, we have this big, great backyard. Um, we even, when we bought it, we didn't want a pool, but this house came with a pool. And I was like, I'm going to backfill it. I don't want a pool. I'm going to fill it in. Now that's all warm. I'm like, this is amazing, right? Um, and so we're out there every day with the kids. And, and, you know, whenever we can, they're out there in the pool and just enjoying it. And it's beautiful. And, and we moved from California, which means, like, my grass didn't used to grow. And I had to fight it all the time. And now grass just grows. It's incredible. I, I got to tell you guys, it's a miracle. Grass just grows here. And so it's this beautiful lawn with flowers everywhere. And there are all these animals that come into our yard and our kids have their toys and it's like go forth and be merry right and so just go out to the yard and have a good time well the 
here's how the, the law works. Around our yard is a fence. And that fence is, a, is, a, is this big red fence that our kids, when they try to, as when they go out in the yard, usually invariably there's this time where they're like, ah, can you like open up the fence? I want to go out there. And we're like, you, you can't just go out there because out there is a street, right? Uh, they're like, hey, there's a guy out there who's got like a beat up old van. He's offering me an ice cream cone. Can I go with him? Like, this would be fun, guys. Why? And it's like, no, there's a reason why there is a fence here. You can't, like, I, you, you don't, see the big picture enough. You don't have quite the wisdom to know what it means to go beyond it and what it's not for your good if you go beyond there. And that's the same way that the first use of the law is given to restrain sin. The law is there in our life to actually restrain us from doing things that would damage us. It's there uh, to protect our marriages. It's there to protect our, our families. It's there to protect us from just going down a road as a society, as individuals, as families, from destroying ourselves. It restrains sin. And then the second one, the law shows us our guilt and leads us to Christ. When uh, a lot of times my kids, if they want to, they're kind of up at the door. Like, you know, you find them over there. For some reason, there's like, because there's the fence, they can't get their mind off the fence. And so they're over there at like the fence and they're like wiggling it. They want to get out. They want to like go somewhere. And it's the same way that often the law works in our life, that it reveals to us when we keep coming up against it. And the law says, hey, don't, this is what it means actually not to murder. It means actually don't hate someone in your heart. And you keep coming up against that, and you're like, ah, so I have hate and murder in my heart. Paul says if, if you didn't have the law, you wouldn't actually know that you were sinning. You wouldn't know what to call it. You wouldn't even know that you were actually deviating from who God is. You, wouldn't, you would go all the way down this road and be so numb to your sin and living this lifestyle that you would never be able to get back to know God. And so that law is there so that you would see your sin, and when you look at it, you would call it for what it is. Sometimes they call this a mirror. The law is a mirror. And what happens then is when we see it, it's kind of this like, why like a magnet sometimes am I drawn to sin? And you go, oh, because what scripture says is true and I'm dead in my sin and I need to be a complete new creation in Christ. And so the law, what happens if we're willing to look at the law and go, okay, this is what God's word says. I keep coming up against this and you go, I need life in Christ. I'm not righteous. And so again and again, what that does is it points us to Christ. It's not a one-time thing that just you pray a prayer and then you move on with your Christian life. I'm done with the sacrifice and Jesus thing. What it means is because Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all, I keep going back to that and saying, Christ, help me find my identity truly in you. I've died to myself. I'm a new creation in you. Because I find that again and again and again, this lawlessness is at work in me. And the last one. The third and principal use of the law is an instrument to learn God's will. And so also because of the fact that there's this fence, we focus so much on the fence that we forget there's an entire yard, right? There's an entire yard to go and delight and know life, just run and play and delight in this, what God has given you. It's the same thing like when I think about like my marriage. Now, we might think of my marriage as like a little garden inside of the yard, right, of life. But it's like it's got even more strictures around it. And why is that? So it's protected. So it doesn't get overgrown, so that things don't get in and eat away at it, so that it's a place where it can be cultivated and it can be beautiful, but it has to have certain things around it to protect it, or else what happens is if there's nothing there, it just gets eaten alive, and it gets destroyed. And so what the law is there for is to help us see, like, there is a world to delight in, to know God. If you think about the garden, this is what happened originally with Adam and Eve, there was one tree, don't eat of this tree. And they just kind of went up to that tree and were like, but I want the tree so bad. And then they're like, uh, and it's like there's an entire garden of trees. But they're focused on that. It's the same way in our life that God wants us to see. Like there's an entire life I've given you. And so this is why 
Paul elsewhere describes it this way, because now you've been given the Spirit of Christ. And he says, don't you realize that you're no longer under the law, but you're under the Spirit of Christ? In fact, you used to be enslaved, but in fact now to sin and death, but now in fact you've been given the Spirit of freedom? He describes it like this in Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the flesh are against the flesh. For there are, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. See, Paul will go on to describe this as not being under, now being under the law of Christ. He says, you're no longer under this law of the Old Testament law, but in fact, now you are actually under the law of Christ. Because now when you were dead in your sins, you're going through life just kind of like, hey, I'm free, I'm free. And he's like, no, you're not. It's called the sin, the flesh, and the devil. They're all preconditions coming into you. And when you think you're free, you're actually enslaved to those things. But now if the Spirit comes into you, changes your heart, you're a new creation, that means that you can actually walk now in true freedom. If you want to, I recommend that you read Galatians uh, 5 and 6, and you'll follow this. And you can see how Paul develops this. But Jesus fills us with his Holy Spirit. And when he fills us with his Holy Spirit, in the same way now we're compelled. His Spirit compels us to pursue the things of God. His Spirit, when we go, Spirit, fill me today. Help me to love the things that you love. Help me to delight in the things that you delight in. And the Spirit leads us to see joy all over in our life. And it's as if God just opens up the world and sends us out into the world. And he he says, go, and we're filled with God's Spirit, and we're just delighting, and we overflow. And guess what? As we do that, more and more we look like Christ. But we walk in the midst of a broken world, but filled with joy and filled with peace and patience. That's why Jesus says, don't throw out the law. Let it train you. Let it shape you. Let it refine you and transform you. Find your life in me and then overflow with the life that I give you. This is why Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Often we read that and we think, oh, is Paul saying now all of a sudden I got to work, work for my salvation? Fear and trembling. I got to get saved through fear and trembling. No, what Paul's saying is you are saved. You're in a state of salvation. Therefore, work it out. It's the same thing if Paul were to say, hey, Matt, work out your marriage with fear and trembling. I wouldn't be like, oh, I got ma- to work to get married. He'd be like, no, that the, the whole point is that you're married already. The whole point is that you're saved already, but you now get to go deeper and invest in that and actually find life in that because of the fact that it's by grace and you're not under this law that if you fail at any one moment, it all falls apart. It's like Christ has you. My father has you in his hand. So pursue life by the spirit with fear and trembling. And that fear and trembling is because I fear and tremble that I would live a life that is not full of the delight and joy of God. Jesus wants us to begin enjoying now what we'll know fully forever. This is all, this whole sermon is so that we would know now. We wouldn't just, oh, one day we'll be saved and we'll see God face to face. No, now. Begin living in that reality now. And we'll know it fully then. This week, as I've been thinking about this, it's like, and as we were singing earlier, I just couldn't help but picture when Kevin, just how, I loved how passionately he would worship have his hands up, and he'd be singing out praises to God. And I just imagine even this morning as we're singing that he's there with Jesus right now, his arm around Jesus, just singing with us. And, and I imagine when Kevin walked into that room, this life, what was the life that we saw in him? 
The life that we saw in him was not, hey, you better exceed the righteousness I have. The life that we saw in him was a man who understood that he was, he may be a good man, he may be becoming a good man, but it's because he knows a better man. And that better man, when he, all throughout his life, I want to know you, Jesus. I want to live in you, Jesus. I want to walk by your spirit. And when he walked through heaven's doors, he looked up and he said, there's my life. There's my joy. This is why Paul can say that when we die, we can yell for it, just gain. Because everything I've been searching for is right here in Jesus Christ. And what joy there is in knowing that nothing in this world can take that away. Because Christ has fulfilled the law so we might be saved. And one day in the new heavens and new earth, the law is no more. We will run, we will play, we will delight face to face with our God. Where there will no longer be a need for a fence, just a big yard to delight in in God's presence. We can become better, more whole men and women because we know a better man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have not come here this morning to be just given rules to fulfill, just to be given a law that hangs over us like a curse that just hangs around our neck. And either a law that hangs around our necks like a weight that either causes us to, in one way, walk, acting as if we've never failed at the law and walking in self-righteousness, and, or on the other hand, walking in guilt and condemnation and just trying to numb ourselves. Lord, don't allow us to go down either one of those roads, but help us to be a people who see that Christ has fulfilled the law. And that the law is good, it points us that the law cannot save us. That the law does condemn us. We see all these things in Scripture, that all these things are true. But that Christ fulfills that law so that we might actually stand on it and it might actually direct us towards you. And so, Lord, make us a people alive in you, filled with your Holy Spirit, desiring your holy presence, and becoming more and more like Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.